Hey guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. I'm your host, Lauren Stone, and today we're joined by Dr. Khalid Ahmed. He's a senior lecturer in prosthodontics at Griffith University. He's also an examiner for the RACDS and delivers the RACDS masterclass in clinical examination techniques and dental imaging as part of the college CPD program. As an avid believer in lifelong learning, Khalid's professional development journey spanned the USA, the UK, and Hong Kong for the past 17 years of his career. His expertise are in digital dentistry and toothwear. Dr. Khalid Ahmed, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Lawrence. So, tell us about your CPD dental journey so far. Well, it's 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 been quite extensive and it's it's um, it covered a number of different countries. So I, I did my primary degree in Alexandria in Egypt. And after that, I did my fellowship in prosthodontics at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, and then I moved to the UK where uh, I did my restorative dentistry residency in uh, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, so restorative in, in the UK is perioendopros and operative, so four. And after that, I was teaching full-time at Glasgow and I was um, doing a part-time PhD. And then uh, when I um, joined Hong Kong University, I also did a um, master's uh, of laws degree in medical law and ethics. Um, and now I'm at Griffith in, in Australia. Yeah, well, let's, let's get back to that very beginning. I mean, did you think it. that you're gonna be where you are now? Like talking about the academic side of things to get to this point? No, absolutely not. Absolutely. So each one of those steps was not planned. It was absolutely not planned. It was just opportunities, and um, um, I adapted um, my expectations uh, uh, um, based on the opportunity that was present, and, and I went for it, and it worked out fine in the end. Yeah. Well, then talk to me about you know because a lot of our community are very recent graduates. So you've graduated, and now you're looking into how did the fellowship of present implantology kind of come about? So I always wanted to continue my postgrads, and they had started this fellowship program at UIC in Pros and Implant, and I was keen on that. And it was we were back in two thousand and. Six or two thousand five, yeah, around that period of time, and then I, um, I saw it, and and we were just talking about implants. It was starting to boom the whole field, and I was like, I want to do that, and so you know, contacted the program director, and I thought I'm quite keen on it. What what are your requirements? And so on, read the handbook, and I I ended up uh, getting accepted into the program, and uh, the rest is history. So flew up, and flew out, and 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 uh, went to Chicago. Right. Were you working as a general dentist at the same time or you were teaching or tutoring at the same time then? So, yes, at that period of time, I was working in a private practice and I was also doing uh, uh, an internship with uh, the university, um, which I completed. So once that was done, I was I was already more or less planning for the move in Chicago, especially at the end, mm. um, completed that and flew out. 
Yeah. And then after that, you mean, you continued on to do more restorative, yes. a master's in restorative dentistry. Yes. So how did that kind of come about? Because obviously at this point, most people would think, hey, I've d completed a fellowship in pros and implant. I feel like I've got so much knowledge now, um, but you compelled yourself to go and continue that. Well, it's, it's actually the other way around. So as, as soon as you graduate, you, you, you think that you've got a, a very solid grasp of, of, uh, um, of dentistry as a whole and you're good to go and everything is good. Um, but in actual fact, the more you know about a specific field, uh, the more you discover that you don't know that much. So you keep knowing more and more and more, and uh, uh, you'll find your footing where which areas that you like most. So I, I decided early on that ortho and peds is just something that I, it's, it's not for me. So that was right. oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, very traumatic for me, for the kids, for everyone. It's it's just uh, uh, not my field. Um, oral surgery also yeah, was okay from a surgical perspective, where you're placing implants and so on. But again, it was something that that wasn't that intriguing. To me um so so afterwards after after chicago there the newcastle at the time had some of the best uh, uh, uh restorative dentists probably in europe some of the best in in the world and they published the, the this this seminal book uh, which is a reference for uh, uh restorative dentistry specifically process the Crowns and Extra Coronal Restorations. It's by Robert Wassell, Angus Walls, uh, uh, Francis Noel, Nick Jepson, and, and others. So this this is one of our main references here at Griffith, even before I joined. Mm. Um, uh, and I trained with those people. So again, when I was keen, I was like, I need more. I want. Yeah, I want to study more. This is a field that interests me. Uh, again, that opportunity popped up, and and um, I, I contacted Robert at the time and. Uh, I told him I'm quite keen on it, and I joined the their program. And I, I think it was probably the best part, uh, a most influential part of my training was uh, uh, those years in 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 Newcastle. So it's, it's set. It's 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 quite good having someone to. So Bob is quite meticulous, and and he used to breathe down my neck each and every step. They have to be done to an absolute excellent standard. And in many ways, it's it's helpful to have someone like that. It could be stressful, I'll give you that. But it's 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 helpful having someone vetting everything that you do and teaching you how to do it the correct way or the way that they think is the correct way based on evidence. So that that was exceptionally helpful. Um, and then completed that um, an opportunity for uh, uh, doing a PhD, uh, fully funded PhD with, with Glasgow popped up with the job so you're teaching full-time and doing the phd part-time is all all sponsored by glasgow university again another i never never dreamt of doing a phd it wasn't wasn't on the cards cards at all opportunity pops up yeah, went for it and and it, it it was very good right yeah so i mean like i think you've touched on a few points here you've talked about mm -hmm. how when you, you kind of graduated you wanted to dive into it because implantology is is this new field that you're interested, you wanted to explore it a little bit more? Because for a lot of graduates, when they graduate, they're thinking about ortho, they're thinking about implants. I need to go and learn all of this really quickly. Like, how do I kind of get on top of it? And that's kind of what you did. But then after doing it, you realized, wait, I need to come back and get on top of the bread and butter stuff first. 
um, and really hone in on that before um, going back into it. Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's very important to, to get your foundation. If, if that foundation is, is solid, the rest is easy. So, so these little additions, the cherry on top, that's, that's, that's the easy part. So uh, uh, especially now with, with implant placement, it's the companies, the technologies advancing, the, 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 uh, the companies are making it even more accessible and more straightforward. You've got a fully guided structure guide and so on. You know, it's, it's, it, for many cases, it's straightforward. Um, but it's, it's the fundamentals. So unless you're going to limit your practice to implants, uh, uh, you really need to get on top of your restorative. I, I, when I say restorative, I mean the, the broader spectrum of sorts of your perioreandular crossword optim and treatment planning and so on, it's, as opposed to just being focused on placing one implant, restoring one tooth and so on. So yeah. stepping back, uh, 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 um, stepping away from the, uh, um, an item-based or treatment-based or a disease-based approach to managing the patient or treating the patient, but stepping mm -hmm. back and taking a more comprehensive uh, uh, approach to managing everything, starting from oral hygiene prevention and so on, all the way up to maintenance. Right, yeah. And then what you really kind of got out of that restorative dentistry was being very meticulous about very the smaller things. Is that where you got away from that? Yes, yes, and, and understanding that each step in that process is as important as the end result, um, which is rather than mistakes do happen, things don't go as planned. That's, that's, that's just a part of life. The, the worst thing is to be in a position where you're doubting yourself, well, should I have taken a second impression or a better impression? Um, maybe I should have spent uh, uh, more time on ensuring that the patio is stable or in order or the patient is on top of their oral hygiene or um, it's, it's that self-doubt and you don't know whether it's just statistics, whatever the percentage of failure, everything is going to fail or has a percentage of failure. Uh, or is it because of something that, you know, a second try in would have helped or totally changed the outcome? These small steps, the buildup of it uh, is, is very important, but also having uh, uh, being part of a team where your arm is your dental technology, for example, especially with Cross, uh, uh, that you could trust, you trust their work, you trust their steps. And if they send you back something, tell you, you know, that this impression is rubbish. It's just it's, it's rubbish. You need to take another one. Just trust them. Yes, I really need to take uh, or make a second impression. Mm, yeah, I guess earlier on we can kind of it, it. We have to dig really deep to kind of be critical of ourselves. Sometimes we just like to blame someone else for um, our mistakes. Well, yeah, so, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, so at mm. the same time, so you're doing these masters and you're working mm. at the same time. Is that right? Or you're studying at the same time at this point within the university you're lecturing? So the masters I was doing it full time. The PhD I was doing it part time. Right. And then, so once that's all happening, so now you're, you're in this situation where like you were thinking you're being a clinical dentist and then all of a sudden now you're slowly transitioning into this academic, um, in dentistry, what's kind of going through your mind at this point? Cause obviously you're seeing your other colleagues 
that are, you know, excelling or, you know, progressing in their life in the terms of clinical dentistry because academic dentistry isn't really talked about or explored all that much because you don't see, you know, um, posts online about it. You don't talk about, there's no, no glamorous side to it. It's, uh, it's, it's, this is, this is quite the interesting question. So, so there seems to be uh, a perception of a schism between being a clinician as opposed to being an academic, uh, which could be the case. And many people who have shifted totally into a research-based uh, uh, position with academia, so they're just doing research and so on. Or for certain fields such as epidemiology, for example, uh, it's mainly about screening or prevention and so on, so minimal dentistry. That wasn't the case uh, for myself or with people in the restorative who, who have their hands wet, really, where you're uh, in the UK, for example, I had a position as a senior house officer where I also would see patients, but also the clinical teaching of it. Um, we've all been, been students and you know that, especially at the beginning, there is, there is a, a lot of holding hands and you know what, we're running out of time and this patient really needs this dentist, so let's, let, let me just go in there. Let me show you how it's done. And if, if the supervisor is not on top of their key, um, it's not going to work. Simply, it's not going to work. It's going to be very challenging for the patient, very challenging for the student, very challenging for, for the, the supervisor themselves. So uh, 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 you, ha you have to be actually a good clinician in order to be able to do clinical teaching. If you're not really, you're, you're, not, you're not in the right place. Um, that's, that's, that's one part of it, but, uh, but also the fact that you're being, you think, yeah, so people have more. Similarly, if people who graduated and went ahead and opened their practices and they have their own patient pool, why you're still, uh, uh, uh slaving away doing studying or studying full-time or doing whatever, uh, um, you can't help but think, okay, well, you know, they're out and about their earning higher income than I am while I'm studying. Maybe some people or many people would be in debt and so on. Um, but the bottom line is the way to think about it is, is like an investment. So the earlier that you invest in yourself, every penny that you invest in, in yourself, in your continuing education, trust me, in the long run, you're going to get uh, 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 multiples of returns of that investment, I assure you. One thing that is absolutely, I'm absolutely confident about is that that investment uh, uh, will be very profitable in the long run. Just, you know, keep at it, keep at it. Um, and and what, what, what better to invest in than in yourself, not, not in a house or, a, you know, you, you could buy many houses later on. That's, that's not the issue. The, the issue is, is uh, uh, becoming a better dentist, learning, but also takes a lot of courage and humility because none of us like feedback let's be honest well critical feedback uh but the fact of the matter is yeah, you're going to be good at things and you won't be good at others um and you're, you're going to learn them just just give it time believe in yourself and and hopefully you're going to have someone who holds your hand even in private practice as a mentor someone who comes along and is like you really shouldn't have done this you really shouldn't have done this ah if i was you i would have done a b c and d that's learning that's learning as opposed to, to uh, being upset or defensive, it's, it's about inside. But we do it also self-reflection, uh, reflecting, you know, maybe I should better, better myself. Taking that critique from someone else also takes a lot of courage and humility and acceptance, especially if you trust that person or that person has the skill and knowledge that is necessary to give you 
that critique of feedback. Uh, it has to be mutually uh, mm, respectful right. feedback. So once you're finishing your PhD, it's not too long before you start to consider this membership into the Royal College of Surgeons. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Actually, I was quite late on that one. I was very late. So usually in in the UK now, uh, 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 most graduates will uh, start their part one of the membership, whatever membership, membership of the Faculty of Dental Surgery or the membership of the joint um, college of dentistry whatever whatever membership it's it's going to be but they start that pathway of of membership as soon as they graduate and most most candidates that are accepted in postgrad studies usually will have a membership qualification so i i actually started quite late in that track um, and the aim is that you finish, you complete your membership, you do your postgrads, whatever, continue private practice. And after that, uh, once you've got a few good years, seven, eight, ten years of experience, you then go ahead and com- continue onto your fellowship. And then that's 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 really doesn't get any higher than that. Um, so, so yeah, my my journey started a bit later with this membership. So in my in my uh, congregation for my the membership. One of my students that I had taught in Glasgow was sitting right next to me, receiving also her membership. Right. Mm. So, I mean, whilst you're in that transition from that membership to that fellowship, you decide to do a Masters of Law? Yes. So how does that kind of come into the whole picture of things? So it's, it's again, part of the uh, continuing professional development. So the, the uh, field uh, of... Uh, medical legal aspects of dentistry is a growing field and it's very, very important. And it's again about self-reflection and also giving feedback um, and understanding what's going on with the basics from consent to if something goes wrong, what do you do to being an expert witness. So it is quite interesting and it also ties in with uh, uh, your postgrad education. So it would be very difficult for you to be an expert witness, as for example, by the uh, Dental Protection or the uh, Australian Dental Association or by uh, uh, ABRA to write an expert witness report in a case. If you're not clinically skilled or unqualified, you really shouldn't be taking such a request. They probably won't approach you but or approach me if I wasn't qualified for that. Second thing, it, it helps a lot having that medical medical legal background in order to be fair and, and assess the situation from a different aspect because it's it's very different. Humanities is very different, Lawrence, to what we do. Mm-hmm. We're, we're used to, I'll give you an example, when you write a, a research paper, you've got an experimental design, you do, uh, you've got hypotheses, methods and materials, you come up with results, and then your discussion is based on that those results. That is different from humanities. Humanities, you're sitting there, you're pontificating, you, uh, you've got, uh, uh, you have to tie things with ethics. You have to, because it's not just uh, a law by its law and ethics uh, and the principles, and and look at much larger picture. And it's your opinion. It's it's no longer data or this is my experiment. If you don't believe me, go repeat, uh, replicate the experiment and see whether you get the same results. That is not the case. Is logic, is common sense, it's uh, critical analysis, critical thinking, uh, which is which which is which is quite difficult if you're not used to doing that uh, and relying on hard sciences. 
it mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, can be quite challenging, but I, I, I adore it. I absolutely adore it. And that's why I'm also uh, uh, responsible for the practice management uh, component in, in uh, Griffith over here. So I, I also give a lecture to consent and uh, on consent, and I lecture to the uh, supervisors, give them uh, in the mandatory workshop about consent and, and the different aspects of consent. Yeah, well, because, I mean, for a lot of um, graduates, they're probably thinking, hey, consent's just about having a lengthy kind of document. You know, do I, would I go to, do I have to go to the extent of doing a Master's of Law to fully kind of encapsulate all of that? Um, what's your take on that? No, you don't, you don't need a Master's uh, uh, of Laws in order to understand valid consent. That, that, let's put that this way. Um, but you need to understand the fundamentals of valid consent. And what you mentioned about that piece of paper or that document, that consent form, that, that's not valid consent. That is absolutely not valid consent. That is a piece of paper. It doesn't prove anything. Well, it, it does help, but it is just one part of valid consent, which is documenting what's been understood, relayed, you know the various aspects of it, just signing it doesn't mean that you've got valid consent. Because also remember, Lawrence, that consent is a process. So it is not just a one-off uh, or a tick box exercise, I've got consent, let's move on. Consent has to be given at each and every appointment. And consent, just as it's acquired, it can be very easily withdrawn. So uh, even, I'll give you an absolutely ridiculous scenario. So you've done this crown preparation, you've got a provisional crown, and uh, today is delivered doesn't like the definitive crown, likes the uh, provisional crown. That's it. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. He withdrew that consent for you to deliver that crown for them. And you give them the risks, the alternative, the consequences. You give them all that information that this, these are the problems with you doing that. And they refuse. They refuse treatment. And that's the end of it. That is literally the end of it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Hey, um, consent isn't just a a fallout document and then them just signing on and at the end you have to go through all that verbal discussion so they fully understand what they're kind of getting into documenting all of that down and then like you said repeating that at the next process again just to make sure that they're on board and fully understand what's kind of happening um yeah because for i think for a lot of people um you know they graduates come out and they think that oh you know there's these big procedures i'm gonna do as long as i have this form signed and i have it slightly written out I should be all covered, but it goes more further than that. So, of all these CPDs that you're doing, right? What's had the biggest clinical impact um, on your dentistry? Um, as I mentioned earlier, the the uh, the masters in restorative dentistry that are, uh, I completed in Newcastle that that had the greatest impact, and reasonably so because you've got uh, um, you're doing it full time. You're sitting there. You've got. Uh, uh, clinical exposure, and you've got a supervisor vetting each and every step uh, uh, in each and every procedure that you are completing with that patient. And in the end, you have to, so at, uh, at the time, we also used to bring in our patients. So my examination would, uh, I, I had two professors and uh, a restorative dentistry consultant coming and examining my work. So the patients were uh, in the chairs, and they went there and examined, and you had the case reports, and after that, you had the viva clinical viva. Um, so it was a rigorous assessment. So you had to make sure that everything was done uh, properly uh, uh, and you could defend it. So so it's not necessarily about 
choosing one treatment option versus the other, but rather being able to justify that choice of treatment uh, 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 using evidence. Mm. This is what I did, and this is this is why I did it. And yeah, that is people, the important part. Yeah, well, I mean, I want to ask as well, because before deciding on that one and, you know, realizing how much of a scope it, um, how much of a game changer it was for you, did you do any weekend kind of courses um, along the way prior to that? Yeah, I, I did. I did a number of courses, mainly, to be honest, in, in, uh, in implants uh, with the uh, um, International Congress of Implantology, the ICOI, and the German one, with it, which was the DGCI. And there are various conferences that I had uh, uh, attended. And that, again, the more you watch, the more you see, uh, uh, the more you discover that, you know, that there's much more to it. There is much more to it. Um, obviously, as a general practitioner, you're not expected to understand each and every step of uh, uh, adhesion of this uh, 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 GMA to, to structure. No one expects you to do that, but at least you have the fundamentals because remember in general practice, you've got all these new products coming in, uh, out every other day, and then you're being hammered with marketing from different companies. And then you might have also reps knocking on your doors, on your door and coming and telling you, you know, we've got this fantastic product, so we can look at it, and this is what we claim that it doesn't. So being able to understand the fundamentals of how things work, but also asking, so cutting out the middleman and asking, <clears throat> where is the evidence? Uh, uh, where they tell you actually there's this study that was published so, so and then you have a look. Uh, and you read for yourself and understand whether this is worth your time or not makes a massive difference. It makes a difference between we're talking about informed consent. Now you've got an informed clinician. Mm, yeah, I think that that's the bar. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because uh, when I started the Kings one, I think that was a big difference for me as well. It was that change in mindset of understanding of. Um, diving deeper because one of those things that happens when you're doing going through weekend workshops sometimes it's just you get these tips and tricks that's fine but you don't really understand how it kind of uh, why you might be doing it or you know the differences or being that what you talked about that critical thinking that comes into what you might find when you come with this more structured program absolutely but also you need to um, you need to take into consideration the source of the information so uh, whenever something is free, you need to know that the product is you. Um, so the source, academia has its, its problems. No one can, can argue about that. But one thing that remains uh, always going for academia is that at least you know that you're, you're going to get the least biased source of information delivering that information to you. There are programs that are sponsored and so on. But again, we're talking about people who will have different sponsors. You've got their integrity. I'm published. I know my stuff. I'm, they're not going to endorse something that's bad. Uh, uh, so that saves you a lot of time. Uh, tips and tricks are also very good. But what it boils down to is whether you want your training to be a structured one or a, a, an unstructured one. So your CPDs in general, um, are, are if we're talking about the two hours, five hours, seven hours, uh, I delivered a master class for the Royal College on diagnosis and treatment planning. That was that was uh, uh, five hours. Again, there's only so much that you're going to get from uh, uh, such courses, and it's not fair to expect more. And then you've got ones that are hands-on, but again, it's going to be in a, a, a simulated uh, uh, environment. It's not going to be the same as doing that work uh, uh, clinically. 
the level on top of that, you've got the uh, uh, credit uh, bearing ones like a Michael Masters. I know Hong Kong University has one, especially in implants, uh, uh, where you do all these online courses and you've got some assessments and then you get credit for them and certificate from the university and so on. And then the, the top level would be your uh, clinical masters where you either do work in your practice and you get that work assessed or vetted uh, 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 as part of a search program or you're physically part of that program two days, three days, full time, five days uh, and so on. See, expectations need to be uh, different and the outcomes from each one is going to be different. Some work for uh, some people, some don't work for others. It's, it's, it's really down to everyone. Uh, as long as your expectations of that course are realistic, you should be fine. Mm. Yeah, thank you for going into the, you know, the range and scopes of the different um, types of programs that are out there because for um, a lot of young clinicians, in Australia, they, they can't see the breadth of what is available. Um, and I think we're kind of emerging into this um, this area of more of these different programs coming in. So you've previously mentioned that Tony Jones has been a big inf um, influence in your life. Um, can you talk to me about that and anyone else and why? So Tony Jones was, uh, if you're referring to the Tony Jones, who was my mentor for the fellowship. Uh, 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 with the Royal College of Surgeons of England. So, so Tony, part of the fellowship program is that you're assigned a mentor. So uh, that mentor actually vets your whole application and your work and gives you uh, advice. So Tony was, was instrumental. So Tony is a private practitioner. He's uh, worked in private practice throughout his career. And it was very helpful to get his, his insight um, and his support, really, and direct you in 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 the right direction. But but yes, I've got uh, I, I I've had many many mentors throughout the years, and each one played a different role at a different stage of my life. Some of them have continued till today. Robert Wassel, that I mentioned for the uh, restorative masters, every Christmas I still message Robert to check on him, even though it's been over over a decade now since I've completed the uh, the program. So so. Throughout your career, you're going to find fantastic people, fantastic mentors who are going to help you hold your hand and guide you because they've seen it or they've done it themselves. And you need someone like that. Yeah, that's that's incredible. You know, um, something that I've come across talking to previous guests as well is that sometimes when we graduate from a program, we think that, you know, um, we can't go back to our academic um, university um, people to go um, and ask for help and seek them for advice. Sometimes we think that we've gone into this new world of clinical and that's it, like, you know, and then we have to rebuild those support networks again. But it's easy to forget it, that your academics back at university are always there to be open to listen and talk to you. Well, absolutely. Uh, um, maintain relations. So, so, so uh, many of my students are from different schools they still contact me and, see, and ask for advice or even just say hello. We, we, we're very keen on knowing how, how are you doing and how you're progressing uh, uh, with your career. But even forget about academics. One of the greatest challenges probably after graduation is joining a practice that has someone or a number of people who can mentor you. This, this, is, this, is, this is critical. Um, and it could make life so much easier and your journey much, much more easier. 
by identifying someone who would be able to hold your hand and, and you know if something goes wrong and something will go wrong that they could tell you oh yeah, yeah step aside now let me help you with this one or how you can do this or i can go to them and you know i've got this case what do you think and this is important till this day uh, uh i seek advice from different people especially if if um it's something that is um out with my comfort zone um i um in academia here uh, uh, with, with Griffith, if there is a, a case that requires a, a, a peri opinion, I seek a periodontist. I don't seek, I'm not going to waste the time for each and everything, but if there is something that, that really requires that advice, there's no problem in that. And the people are more than happy and willing to help because what goes around comes around. Um, but having that mentor is critical throughout uh, uh, your career at different stages of your career as a fresh grad later on as more established uh, 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 clinician if you're doing your uh, uh, or, or you embark on that cpd journey having someone to give you advice this is the right pathway this is a better outcome this is a really good program this is cpd that helped me a lot um, but even later on once you're uh, 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 an older more experienced dentist working you need people you will need people so uh, uh, our job usually is a solitary one. You're in your bay, your clinical bay, you're very dental assistant, you've got a patient uh, in the chair, and we really get an opportunity to see other people's work. You see the stuff on uh, social media, which can, which can be quite deceiving because you're only seeing the success stories, the glam stuff. But you, at this stage of my career, I'm more interested in, in seeing the failures because this is when you really learn. Uh, what 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 went wrong so that I can avoid it or how can I learn from it? Um, so having someone, again, to discuss things over here at Griffith, uh, uh, Professor Manaka Abuzar, so she's the head of prosthodontics. Many times I go to her and I ask her, so Manaka, we've got this case and, and what do you think? And I am I'm astonished that 99% of the cases our opinions are identical, even though I don't share it. And that gives you comfort. So so that we need that validation, you know, because you are stepping into an unknown. There are many variables for each patient. So having someone experienced, knowledgeable doing that or helping you, giving you advice, makes makes a big difference, uh, not just professionally, but also mentally and so on. Um, academia, taking up different positions and so on. My, my previous boss, in uh, Hong Kong, who was a professor at uh, Melbourne University, uh, Michael Borrow. Um, again, you've got an academic who's a specialist prosthodontist, uh, who's head of resource sciences in Hong Kong, very successful and very humble, very down to earth. And sit with you and give you the advice. And, you know, you've got all these characters throughout my career that I can think of, my PhD supervisors who listened to me when I came up with all the kooky ideas for my project and they humored me. And we went through some of them. The others were chucked to the side. And again, it worked. So you need people. You need to have people to identify these people um, to guide you through throughout your journey. Yeah. So have there been any particular struggles that you've had during your CPD or dental journey so far that some of our viewers might not know about? It's uh, about me personally. I'm not sure, but, but in, in general, Transitioning from uni to uh, uh, work and practice is a big change. Uh, 
and it could be quite the shocker because all of a sudden, if something breaks down, it's your problem. So you need to fix it. And sometimes you need to fix it on the spot. That puts a lot of pressure. And you've got the time constraints, but, but also most importantly, you've got financial constraints because ain't nobody gonna sit there and pay for you to take five impressions. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you've got a running cost also that you need to be aware of. Later on, if you've got a, a practice that you own, you're not responsible for the livelihood of a number of people. So these are all challenges. Uh, um, but the fact of the matter is that you're going to come just like you came across people who will mentor you, guide you throughout your journey. You're going to come across some nasty people. Just a fact of life. Just a fact of life. Um, being able to manage the impact of those people on you is very important, is exceptionally important. And it will be more difficult at the beginning of your career, but later on, you're going to learn to say no, you're going to learn to say no, 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 no. That's not good. That's not on. You need to step back. Um, and you're going to gain that confidence. It takes a while, but you're going to get there. Uh, uh, I have no doubt about it. Fair enough. So, I mean, what, I mean, people ask as well that the journey from where you are with all the, everything that's happening over in the UK, what compels you to come over to, you know, Australia and make this big leap? And how did everyone else around you kind of, you know, um, agree with you to come on? Because that can sometimes making it shifting a big lifestyle um, over is a very big thing for um, clinicians. It's, it's, well, so after the UK, I moved to Hong Kong. Uh, and I stayed in Hong Kong for four years where I was uh, head of operative dentistry, not pros, head of operative dentistry, and I was assistant dean for undergraduate education. And then from Hong Kong, I moved to uh, Griffith. Again, it was a matter of opportunities, a suitable opportunity uh, 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 was discussed with me uh, uh, with Griffith. And I was like, yeah, well, why not? It, the beauty of of moving from one place to the other is that you get better at it, just like anything else in life. Uh, so it's the transitioning from one place to the other doesn't phase me that much anymore. So don't be surprised if in a few years, I'm not in Australia, I'm somewhere else. <laughs> but especially for academics, that is just a fact of life because you're going to go where the uh, opportunities lie. Uh, it's, it's a major advantage of academia is that you could to an extent, move from one place to the other because you've got a, um, a set of skills that can be transferable to different institutions. Mm. Um, uh, that is a major advantage. If uh, uh, if I wasn't in academia, things would be much more difficult for me uh, uh, to move. But once once you do it, yeah, yeah, it's you've got the travel bug. There is so <laughs> much so much of the world to see, here, Lawrence, and so little time. Yes, yes. Well, I think some people have said in the past, you know, there's no greater age education than actually traveling to different countries and seeing how they work because you learn about the culture, you learn about so many different things that you can't learn from just a textbook. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you also realize that uh, uh, the students in Glasgow are more or less the same, the students in Hong Kong, more or less the same as the students in Griffith. It's not that different. But also when, when clinically, if we talk about clinically, the, the things that are based on evidence are absolutely identical, startlingly identical. 
Mm, that's that's pretty straightforward. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, I guess for yeah, because that's a, that's a different insight into it. So, what would you say to your budding younger self um, when you were graduating? Um, then, what could you would say? What would you say to them now? Keep at it. You know, it gets better, um, and uh, take it easy on yourself sometimes. Fair enough. Well, Dr. Khaled Ahmed, so many more questions I want to ask you. Thank you for your time today. Um, if you got the people know how they can find you or what you have going on in your life. It's the, the best way to find me is on my website, www.khaledeahmed.com. You can find all the information on how to contact me if you, uh, if, if you would like to get in touch. If you like this episode, drop a comment below on your favorite part or leave a review. Don't forget to share it with your friends and we'll see you in the next episode of CP Junkie Podcast.